Have you ever worn the mask? Yeah. Things were not going great for the Fugees. The band formed in Maplewood, New Jersey in 1990 when high school friends Lauren Hill and Praz Michelle teamed up with Michelle's cousin, Wyclef Jean. The group went through some early lineup and name changes. They were called Time with a Y, then Translator Crew. They recorded an album in 1992, a fairly derivative East Coast rap record called Blunted on Reality, and settled on a new name, Fuji's, based on an insult slung at Jean and Michelle for being Haitian-American. Their label set the record aside until 1994, and predictably, it flopped. For a lot of bands, that would be the end of the story, but you already know what happened next. In 1996, the Fugees came back with a new album, and this time they did everything right. They were better at producing, sampling, and songwriting. They drew in non-hip-hop fans with a couple of well-chosen covers, and while it's unquestionably a group effort, they put Lauryn Hill front and center. The result? One of the biggest and most fun records of the 90s. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Fugees, The Score. I'm Matthew Amster Burton. I'm Jake Amster. Uh, Jake, I'm so glad you picked this album because I was bizarrely unfamiliar with it. Like, I mean, uh, I knew, I certainly knew it existed. I knew the covers and what, that was about it. What did you text me the other night? You, you turned to Lori, your wife and said, wow, this album is really great. And she said something along the lines of, yeah, literally everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah. That, that's pretty much how it went. <laughs> and I deserved it. Yeah. I, I mean, this album was everywhere in 1996 and you know i listened to this a lot back then it was i when i first started high school i was in high school from 94 to 98 when i first started high school i was really into this kind of punk influenced part of my music listening oh sure not really pop punk like really just like green day was in there but it was a lot of stuff like doa and no means no and things like that oh yeah it's great a little bit underground and yeah. nothing like this. And at some point in like 96, 97, I got a couple of friends who really started getting into hip hop and underground hip hop. And I listened to this album and it was so far above what other people were doing that it was like, well, there's a reason that this became widely popular. It is accessible. It is really well produced and it has these, choruses that work with the verses where it's like this isn't just great rapping this is also really really catchy yeah no i i found like i was putting this album on every day during work like you know uh my wife and i sit at the dining room table and and work we both uh do tech support and uh, just kept putting this album on and, and found ourselves both like just bumping along to it like heads moving while we're working i was listening to this at work and could barely concentrate on what i was doing because I w- this happens to me a lot because i concentrate on music but i was so distracted by each track that i could i couldn't really concentrate on what i was doing at work uh because it's so good and it's so catchy yeah, and I and I want wanted to listen to the lyrics as they were coming along, and go, how do they do things like this? Like, it it's like uh, acrobatics, like lyrical acrobatics when you listen to it. Yeah, no, this is this is like the the height of like a very particular style of rapping where they they key they they like hammer a particular rhyme over and over with different words. Um, and kind of just like weave a whole verse in and out of like one strong syllable. 
uh, and then throw in as many like fun pop culture references along with that as possible. I I want to play a song immediately because okay. you say that, and and then I want to talk a little bit about something that you mentioned in our intro. Uh, let's play Fuji Law. Okay, great. We used to be number ten. Now we permanent one in the battle. Lost my finger. Mike became my arm. Pistol nozzle hits a nasal. Blood becomes warm. Tell them it might be easy now. Squeeze this so much. Test why cleft. See that flesh gets scorned. Beat so bad, make you feel like you ain't wanting to be born, John. Tell your friends stay that hell out of my lord. Chicken George became dead. George stealing chickens from my farm. Another dead pigeon. If you are my theosis, then I'm bringing all hate to Cecilia. Nobody shoot me. My body's made a hand grenade. Girl bled to death while she was sunk us in the razor blade. That sounds sick, maybe one day I'll ride the horror. Blackula comes to the ghetto. Jackson Acura. Stevie Wonder sees crack babies. Becoming enemies in their own families. I'ma get and come, you know what we soon done. Gun by my side just in case I got the rum. A boy on the side of Babylon trying to front like you're down with Mount Zion. Wait, wait, wait. It's that next verse oh, okay. that I want I want to listen to the beginning of that. Alright. We drink booms and battle booms to high move us. Rap tunes on black spoons. Take those shorts like poo poos. See Gucci's pop Gucci's for Gucci's and Gucci find me in my Mitsubishi eating sushi bumping Gucci's. Hey, hey, hey. Try to take the crew and we don't So Lauren Hill's verse. Yeah, in saloons we drink boons and battle goons till high noon. Bust rap tunes on flat spoons. Take no shorts like poon poons. See hoochies pop coochies for Gucci's and Lucci. Find me in my Mitsubishi eating sushi, bumping Fuji's. Yeah, that it's great. Is awesome. Like, um, and she makes it sound easy. <laughs> I. That's what I'm saying. It's lyrical acrobatics, like the type of thing that you listen to and you go. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's good. And then you, if you even tried to do something like that, it is just incredible. And this was only like two, three years after the East Coast rap scene was really, really coming into its own and exploding. And this this was taking the, the rap flows that we talked about a couple months ago uh, on Illmatic and taking them to a whole nother level where it's like there's almost no rules anymore to follow about you know ending phrases with something that rhymes right. or where you're putting them it it is like let's just figure out how to mash everything together and work and it and it really does I do have a question though was was a Mitsubishi ever a cool car um the Mitsubishi Eclipse okay in in the mid '90s, was like this sports car oh, great. that All right, apparently good. was really easily easily customizable, and you saw a lot of like really souped out Mitsubishi Eclipses because they weren't very expensive, but you could do a lot of them. Oh, okay. A lot of them, but I'm glad you knew the that, answer to that. Uh, other than that, no, you're correct. It was not. So I wanted to talk about um, that they did put out this album that I'd never heard before last week called Blunted on Reality. Yeah, I listened to a couple of songs. It's, I won't say it's terrible, but there's no hits on it, and you don't listen to it and go, man, how did this flop? And uh, 
so it just got me to thinking about how people sometimes ask me, so why don't you do this album? And I say, well, it didn't come out in the 90s. And they say, who cares? Why don't you do <laughs> albums after the 90s? And the point that I keep making is that the 90s was such a different time for music that in the modern era, if you put out your first album and it's a flop, your career in terms of label support is over. Nobody yeah. wants to invest in a band in the first place, but if they invest in a band and the album doesn't go well, it's time to move on. And in in the mid-90s, when the Fuji's first album completely flopped to the point where nobody's ever even heard it, and most people don't even know it existed, their label comes along and goes, well, that was a disappointment. Here's another $135,000 and complete creative control to do another album. Let's see how you do with this one. Yeah, and it, like it's an amazing evolution from, from record to record. And part, partly it's because they had four years, actually, between recording the first one and the second one. Maybe three years. It, um, it's true. And, and Lauren Hill was, uh, I think, 18, 17 or 18 when the band formed in like 21 when they recorded this album yeah that sounds right so not that a 21 year old is mature but the level of maturity and like lyrical prowess and and what you could do in terms of production i think even younger actually because she she was born the same year as me 75 and so when they recorded this album it would have had to be like 95 so so yeah she was like 20 when the album was recorded which is insane because I like to say this is a very collaborative album, and I think that in terms of how well it works with production and the way that they bounce off each other, it is very collaborative. And I originally said in my notes that the success was based off the efforts of all three members, but listening to it over and over again, I feel like if you took, and no disrespect to them, but if you took Praz or Wyclef out of the picture it still could have been a hit if you took lauren hill out of the picture the album doesn't really make sense yeah it's true um let's let's listen to another song and then i want to ask like the question that that's kind of at the heart of this whole thing okay i would like to listen to oh by the way jake uh like i i kind of procrastinated on uh, working on the agenda for this episode and as a result jake took the three best songs that and said he wanted to play those, but I'll listen to Family Business. Okay. Well, I was born, nothing is promised. My life is filled with less hope than the prophecies of Nostradamus. Omega marks the ending of predictability, birth of agility. Who will it be to test me and expose the futility? I am like a lion from Zion. Stop trying so hard. I think I smell your brain cells frying. The family's behind you if you're worthy. Philosophies developed deep in the back streets of dirty Jersey. Troops with scully hats and Timberland boots. No more break dancing for loot. Niggas hustling shit in the garden state. It grows stink weeds and criminals. Government funds are minimal. A subliminal. These days, it's hard for we to find peace of mind. Between insanity and sanity, there lies a thin line. Some dwell in hotels with Jezebels. A stone age and fall a victim to the plague. Unclean bad dreams. Oh, I clap being a fiend. One last kiss from my sweet serpentine. 
eliminate, break, navigate to rejuvenate thoughts of suicide with my nickel plate. Reconciliation came from my enemy friend who said family don't bend, we stay silent to the end. Now who would think that your best friend would be your worst enemy and your enemy your best friend? Stare into the air, inspiration from the atmosphere. I think of old ghosts that ain't even here, like Alex Haley. Take notes of this biography. My family tree consists of street refugees, a ghetto land where we talk slang. Stolen cars bang like my chitty bang bang shebang featherhead. We ain't selling cocaine today, so refrain and let my family reign. Okay? Just walk in the streets, death can take you away. It's never guaranteed that you see the next day. At night, the evil armies of Shaytan don't play. So defend the family, that's the code to obey. But if I fall asleep and death takes the me second away. time the chorus comes in, uh, either either Wyclef or or Omega who guests on this track uh, does the first half and then Lauren Hill like takes over and like restates the the chorus like as if it's personally happening to her which I think is great. So we talked a lot about again in the Illmatic episode uh which if you haven't heard you should go back and listen to uh the difference between West Coast sound and East Coast sound and when I went back and listened to this track i'm like oh man it's so east coast yeah like it really the west, is the west coast was doing a lot of like p-funk style samples and the east coast was almost taking jazz and when i went to look at the credits on this and expected some sort of weird sample from the 70s of something that i'd never heard which happens a lot with east coast rap it's actually wyclef playing guitar that that repetitive uh track that's going over everything and that's just awesome because he kind of came up with this east coast style sound and put it over a track and it's one of the things that to me makes the fuji stand out is they used a lot of sampling and often didn't do much with it but would also use live instrumentation and come up with their own tracks and it, it set them apart a little bit from what was going on on the East Coast before them. Yeah, I think this like kind of is like the perfect medium for me of like, you know, it's not it's not as spare as like, you know, an 80s hip hop track, but it's not as dense as like a 2010s hip hop track, which sometimes is like a little too much for me. Well, and and also 1996 was a huge year for hip hop. Like yeah. When I start going down the list of hip-hop albums from this year, All Eyes on Me by Tupac, Mm -hmm. The Coming by Busta Rhymes, It Was Written by Nas, Beats, Rhymes, and Life by Tribe Called Quest, AT Aliens by Outkast, The Dogfather by Snoop Dogg, many more. And I'm pretty sure each one of those albums that I just listed had a number one hit off of it. Um. Oh yeah, absolutely. Can I tell you? Can I tell you a funny story that involves a bit of a name drop? No, uh, you cannot. Okay, go ahead. All right. So in in '96, I uh, I interviewed by phone uh, Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam and uh, wrote an article. Just like did an interview with him for the San Francisco Chronicle because I was writing about music at the time. And uh, I asked him, like, what he was excited about in the world of music, and he said, like, the two things he was most excited about were. Uh, uh, this uh, this young rapper Tupac, uh, who is who is really into, uh, and that guy's really going places, and uh, David Lee Roth coming back to Van Halen. <laughs> so those yeah, that those things didn't really turn out oh the God. way he was hoping. Well, I think that Tupac did. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, in, in a sense, yes. It, 
in in a sense, except that he only lived for how much longer after you did like this a interview? couple months, I think. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Um, pre- I, Stone Gossard isn't always right about everything, unfortunately. Um, but that is amazing. Yeah, it was great. Good, good for him for uh, being diverse in his uh, listening of everything. <laughs> yeah. That, that's pretty amazing. Um, so, uh, Proz and Lauren met in high school, as, as you mentioned. Wyclef uh, joined soon after. They became the rap translators, or what What was the other thing? The translator yeah, crew. With a Z, yeah. Terrible, terrible Which I think name. I think like the word translators I think appears on the cover of the of blunted on reality. Yes, it it does. Like, hey, throwback to our really shitty original name. <laughs> yes. Um, after this album, uh, all three of them went on to pretty good success. Yeah. That that last track we listened to uh, had John Forte on it, mm-hmm. who was all over Wyclef's solo album. Uh, Wyclef Sean presents the carnival. Yes. Um, and that had two really big hits off of it and actually did go on to sell a million copies. Praz had a hit with Ghetto Superstar. Yep. His album did not quite sell a million copies, but it was a big hit in, I think, 98. Lauren's solo album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which we will get to at some point. Yes. I had to look at this. So th- the Fuji's the score sold 6 million albums yep. in the United States alone. That is a big album. It was a number one album in 10 different countries. I mean, it was worldwide success. So I'm like, well, I feel like the miseducation of Lauren Hill must have done really well. 12 million copies. Uh-huh. It was a absolute smash, and it was 100% produced by her, which is why when I went back to look at my note about this being collaborative it's like you had two guys who were you know very very talented and were able to become stars on their own and then one stratospheric star right that that they had found during high school somehow so here's the question i want to ask and like i don't i i assume this is a question that people have been asking and debating uh late into the night you know since since 1996 but has there ever been another successful star who is both great at singing and great at rapping? Not just good, but great at both. Is I there made, even one other person? I made breakfast with my girlfriend, Lori, before I came down to record this. And we had this exact conversation where I said to her, try to name anybody that could do both so well that they could have had a career in either exactly that there's plenty of of stars who have done both rapping and singing but lauren hill when she sings you go oh my god that voice is absolutely amazing and then when she raps you're like she could go toe-to-toe with just about anybody like like i i hate when people say things like she is an amazing female rapper you know that that is completely unfair yeah because because she can go against guys just as easily and probably walk all over them in terms of her talent it's i don't i i had this debate sometimes where it's like some people can work their asses off 
to become very, very good at what they do. It's the whole 10,000 hours rule. Mm-hmm. How do you become just born in something like this? I don't, I'm sure that Lauren Hill had to practice a lot and work really hard on where she got to, but this woman was born with this level of talent. Yeah. Um, um, you know, sometimes it just all comes together. Uh, so, yeah, like, you know, I, when I was, so then I was thinking about this and like, okay, like T-Pain, not really. No. <laughs> um, no. The, so the only, <laughs> and what came to mind was um, someone like, I think you know who I'm going to say, who I would say is neither a great rapper nor a great singer, but like just is so much himself at both that he's, re- that I really enjoy listening to him is Drake. <sighs> He's he's the biggest selling artist of the last ten years. Yeah, so he must be doing something right. Um, yeah, like no, I like I said, like I I don't think Drake could out rap Lauren Hill in a million years. I don't think he could out sing Lauren Hill in a million years. I just think like he he does what he does like in exactly the way he intended with both, and I find him fun to listen to. Sure, but just because somebody does do both of those things doesn't mean that they're super talented at both no. those things. He, I, I think that Drake falls into the category of being able to write pop hits, not being That's the true. most talented guy yeah. out there. Um, I want to listen to Ready or Not. Okay. Ready. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Gonna find you and take it slowly. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you and make you yeah. want me. Now that I escape, sleep, walk away. Those who correlate know the world they kick. Jail bars ain't golden gates. Those who fake, they break. When they meet their 400 pound mate, if I could rule the world, everyone would have a gun in the ghetto, of course. When get the up and on their horse, kick around, drinking moonshine. I pour a sip on the concrete for the deceased, but no, don't weep. Why Clef's in a state of sleep, thinking about the robbery that I did last week? Money in the bag, banker look like a drag. I wanna play with Pelicans from here to Baghdad. Gun blast, think fast, I think I'm hit. My girl pinched my hips to see if I still exist. I think not. I'll send a letter to my friends. A born again hooligan, no need to be king again. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you and take it. Now, real quick, because I always find this fun. Let's listen to uh, Ready or Not by the Delphonics. Okay. Okay, that wasn't quite what I expected, but this is pretty great also. <laughs> I know. Well, this is the the point I want to make, though, is the Fugees actually did this a lot on this album, where if you go back and listen to the samples, that the samples in quotations of what they were taking, they were basically just 
taking songs and redoing them as their own. I mean, most famously, Killing Me Softly. Right. Um, but that's what Lauren Hill could do so well, is she could take a hook from a fairly unknown song and make it enough her own that you hear the original and go, well, they're not, they're doing the song, but they're not doing the song. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, what's unfair to the Delphonics is Lauren Hill sounds so much better with what she's doing than what they were doing with the song. Yeah, but it's theirs. So the other thing about this song that I really like, which I tried listening to the original song, um, but could not hear it. This song apparently samples a track by Enya. Oh, I heard about this. I, I can't remember the name of the song. It doesn't matter because if you went back and listened to it, you would not be able to hear it. Um, when she found out, they didn't get permission to use it, which happened a lot in hip hop back in the day, right. um, especially with younger artists. They just heard that people sampled stuff, so they would go in and sample stuff, not knowing that there were things called royalties that they had to <laughs> yeah, pay in exactly. order to use them. And they go, what? Um, so they used Enya's song without permission, and Enya got wind of this, and because the band was making so much money, probably she planned on suing them for copyright infringement until she heard ready or not. And in an interview, she says that the reason that she decided not to sue them and let them just use her track was because she realized that it wasn't gangster rap. That feels a little racist. I, I know I that's, that was my exact thought was yeah. like good for her for letting them use it. But, it, but it's like, yeah, it, it's, I don't like it, that. It, it, it's like, Oh, so if it had been a different style of music, you would have been like, no way. Also, I don't, I don't think Enya gets to decide what is and is not gangster rap. I, I don't think so either. Um, you know, we, we, we weren't really going to talk about this. Certain people felt that uh that the fujis were militant back in the, in the day and i don't hear it and it's certainly not what they're remembered for so maybe they could have been called gangster rap it's not up to enya um i will say uh real quick there was a vicious rumor that went around for a while that lauren hill was quoted as saying that she didn't want white people listening to her music or that it wasn't written for white people right and this has been totally debunked so anybody who thinks they know that story it is absolutely not true i looked it up in multiple places and everything says there's no interview that exists and nobody really knows where that came from um yeah no the like the like what kind of attitude is at the core of this album is is kind of an interesting question because there is like a little bit of, you know, gangsta influence stuff. Like, you know, the the track we just listened to, you talked about like the robbery I did last week, which is not super believable. Um and <laughs> what what that reminds but there is there is political content on this album also you know there's there's stuff about uh you know refugees obviously about uh, you know police brutality and so on um Praz and Wyclef are both of Haitian descent and there is a lot of kind of reference to that yeah. in, including as you mentioned the name of the, of the band itself but i don't think they they take it as to a level in the music of of like 
we've been oppressed our entire lives. Um, I I think more there's a lot of pride in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and to the point where I found out doing research for this uh, record that. Wyclef ran for president of Haiti in 2010. I remember when this happened. I remember I the headlines. Did not. And he hadn't been a resident long enough. The, the rules in Haiti say that you have to be a resident for a certain amount of time. And so he never even got to the point where he was a candidate because he got rejected by the Haitian government. But, you know, he's got a lot of pride in his descendancy. And, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. I this this is kind of changing the subject, but I keep clicking over to Spotify to to cue up the track, and uh, so the album cover comes up, and I keep thinking that you know last month we did uh, Weezer the Blue Album, which has just a plain picture of the band on the cover, and uh, this time we're doing the score, which just has a picture of the band on the cover, but also like it's the exact opposite because like Weezer, it's like here we are, we're the biggest dorks you've ever seen, um, and and this album is like here we are, we're like the coolest people you've ever seen, and we don't have to do anything other than just put our faces out. What's what's funny to me is I look at the cover of this album, and it's basically just headshots of the three of them. Yeah, and I think of those terrible uh like glamour photos from the 80s where it'd be like a picture of your head and then a silhouette of you from the side above it and how right. this is a really cool album cover but if they had just put like side shot silhouettes <laughs> of each of them it would have been the dumbest album cover of all time oh someone needs to photoshop that that would be great <laughs> yeah just if anybody can find uh side shots of each band member and do that please send it to us that would be absolutely amazing i don't have that kind of talent but somebody out there definitely does <laughs> yeah for sure let's let's play another of your songs like i you know i picked some other songs but i really i really do think you picked the best okay let's listen to how many mics pick up your microphones ha <laughs> ha Pick up your microphones. Yo, how many mics do we rip on the deli? Send me, say many money. Send me, say many, many, many. How many mics do we rip on the deli? Many money. Send me, say many, many, many. I get mad frustrated when I rhyme. Thinking of all them kids that try to do this for all the wrong reasons. Seasons change, mad things rearrange, but it all stays the same like the love doctor strange. I'm tame like the rapper. Get red like a snapper when they do that. Got your whole block saying true that. If only they knew that. It was you who was irregular. Soldier sold for some secular music actors. Whack, plus you use that. Loop over and over. Claiming that you got a new style. Your attempts are futile. Ooh, child. You're pure. Brainwaves are sterile. You can't create. You just wait to take my tape. Lace with malice. Hands get callous. From ripping microphones from here to Dallas. Go ask Alice if you don't believe me. I get inner visions like Stevie. See me. Ascend from the chalice like the weeby. Indeed, be like Khalid Muhammad. MCs make me vomit. I get controversial. Freaking style with no rehearsal. Ooh. Contrary, my friend. Don't you even go there. Me without a mic is like a bee without a snare. I dare to tear into your ego. We go way back like some ganja and Poliquo or Coleco. Vision. My mind's making decisions in your anatomy. And I back this with Deuteronomy. Something I'm wondering, and uh, I I doubt either of us knows the answer, is uh, when did rappers start like laying back behind the beat? Ooh, um, because they didn't do that in the '80s. No, um, and by 
96, it was pretty well established as a, as a flow style. Um, and I think, I bet someone's written like a long article on this topic, but it's really interesting because I think, I think like the first, when I first started hearing that, I was like, I, this, this sounds like a mistake to me. And like, I don't know if I get it. And now it seems so natural. I was listening to two hip hop artists this week, one of which, both 96, um, or sometime close to that, one of which totally does that, Diggable Planets. Yep. And one of which every once in a while does that, but was much more the late 80s, early 90s style tribe called Quest. Yeah. Where they were really on the beat. It was sometime in the early 90s that this started, and it was definitely much more of an East Coast thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have no idea who did it first. This track does it so well. Yeah. Uh, this track somehow, even though it sounds like that main melody is sampled, doesn't sample anything. Um, it's produced by the whole band along with a guy who really didn't do anything else. Sean King, um, Jerry T bass Duplessis. Um, and they basically wrote the entire thing together. What's really cool is, aside from the intro, it's it's basically the first track on the album. And I like how, to me, it almost feels like the other members were saying, Lauren's the star of the show here, because the first verse spit on the entire album is her. Yeah. And holy shit. Like, like, she comes in and you go... What is this? Because the other thing that I've been thinking about this week is not only is she arguably one of the best uh, MCs of the 90s, but who really came before her on the female side of things who could spit rhymes like that? Like Missy Elliott was around this same Mm -hmm. time and she's got amazing lyrical prowess. Um, Eve. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think she was a little after this. Um, I mean, I think there were there were other female rappers like late 80s, early 90s who, you know, it was at a time when they just were not allowed to break out yet. So I think like MC Light as an example. Who, Queen Latifah. Yeah. I mean, but Queen Latifah went on to be to be a big star and, and is someone who can both sing and rap quite well. I, yeah. I you know, I think. I, I think overall, I, I like her better as a singer than a rapper, but she can definitely do both. Um, but like, like someone like MC Light, who who was just like uh, an incredible MC who never became a big star, but uh, you know was certainly an influence on Lauren Hill and many other rappers of of the mid to late nineties. Yeah, so so it it definitely existed before this. Like like I I'm not going to say Lauren Hill was the first, but. On a level like this, it in the mainstream, it hadn't been heard very much, yeah. and it's it's really really amazing to hear something like that. I I keep going down the Wikipedia page as we're talking about this, and I know that we've said it already, but this album was so popular and so big. Like all of the reviews are just a five stars. This album sold 18 million copies worldwide. Now, I I like to discuss this a lot, um, and there's an album coming up that we're going to cover that I don't want to say now, okay. where, where every time I think about it, I go, 
how did it sell this many copies? What was it about Fuji's The Score that made it so popular across the board? Okay, so I think, first of all, I think the covers had a lot to do with that because 1996, I was like the deepest I have ever been in like an indie rock hole. Like I was, you know, I was writing about music and and writing a lot about indie rock. You know, I was on the label mailing list and so they would send me like, here's the new Archers of Loaf album and here's the new Jason Faulkner album. And I, you know, I did not listen to enough black music, you know, to, to be blunt about it. Um, I, so, you know, for me, I remember hearing, especially Killing Me Softly uh, over and over, you know, on the radio and like, you know, it was great. Um, I think I, it gave me the impression that this album was like a, a soul album. Oh. Uh, and however, Anyone who was drawn in by one of those covers, No Woman, No Cry is the other uh, cover on the album. Anyone who was drawn in by one of those covers and bought the album, this is a, would be a very hard album not to like once you got it home. Like, I don't, I feel like I don't really trust the person who would listen to this album and be like, eh, this sucks. Like, or, or, or I've been completely duped here. Right, exactly. Like, you know, you... How how can you listen to how many mics are ready or not and not move? Um, right. And and we didn't really cover Killing Me Softly because it is a cover. Like, they, they did very, very little with it besides putting a backbeat and a few little shouts from the other guys on it. It's, it's Lauren Hill being a star on somebody else's track. And if you've never heard the original Killing Me Softly, if you go back and listen to it, you you will instantly go, okay, it's Killing Me Softly. Right. Um, yeah, but I mean, they, they did a very good job with it. And if, uh, you know, there's, there is nothing wrong uh, in terms of marketing your album with, you know, dangling that as bait and pulling people in and being confident that once they hear the rest of the album, they're going to be on board. And, the, oh, and people I, were. I don't think so at all. And really... It's actually very, very hard to do a cover and make it a giant number one hit because most of the time, if a song wasn't a hit already, it's for a reason, or if it was a hit already, people don't really need to hear somebody else do it, and if they do, it's not going to go straight to number one. We, the, should, we should sometime not write on this right now on this episode, talk about like what are our all-time favorite covers. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think the advantage that Killing Me Softly had was that it was a fair one of those things where it was probably known at the time that it came out but for the uh the the time that this came out and the audience that was listening to it they had never heard the song before so to them they weren't like wow this is a great cover they were just like this is a great song well i think it was both so i think it appealed to younger people who were not familiar with the song and people who remembered the roberta flack original and were like you know this is this is a good rendition of that song hey i'd forgotten about how good this song was i'm gonna buy that record yeah and and to give uh roberta flack a lot of credit um not only did she give them permission but i think she truly loved their version of it to the point where she came out and performed it with them yeah. and i want to say the mtv video music awards and and still killed it like like she sounded great on it too oh yeah uh, so so it it certainly 
was a help, but this album is absolutely fantastic on its own. And the only reason that we didn't play Killing Me Softly here is because I think if you hadn't heard that track before, you've been living under a rock for 30 years. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, I, you know, I, I had heard that many, many times, but I did not realize that on the album it kicks off with like a parody. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which it, is very funny and very well done. It's, um, it's part of the previous track, right. actually. Um, I, I was listening to that uh, earlier this week and I went, wait a minute. I, w- I didn't play this track and it's like oh no no it's it's part of the, the previous track this was another one of these things that was done a lot in the early and mid 90s this album is made to be played all the way through yeah they they wrote it in a way that it was supposed to be telling a story in their eyes i i don't really hear that but it flows really well as an album what do you think about the skit like when you talk about a hip-hop album like to what extent do you want to get into the skits um Almost never. Yeah, save here. Um, we already did doggy style, and I th- I like I like it on doggy style. I like it on Dre's produced albums because they're really really funny. Um, I like it on Beastie Boys albums because mm-hmm. it's really really funny. But most of the time, I go, "What are they doing? Like, wh- why why is this in here?" Yeah. But it's not it's not mine. It's not my art. It's not my decision what somebody wants to do on their album. It's I will just... admit I, I did laugh at the skit on this album the first time. Okay. Yeah. I I mean I, I just think it's filler. It's it's like it is. It's like, okay, well, let's get to the next song. Uh so do you want to play anything else? Let's wrap it up. Okay. Um we are for the next couple months going to change up what we do a bit um we are gonna get away from albums for just a little bit we will get back to it yeah and we're gonna do a couple of shorter episodes where we just talk about a song um something that comes out of the 90s and is huge but might have been a one-hit wonder um or might just be something that we can discuss in such depth that it's unfair to do an entire episode on the album because most of the topic is going to be this one track. Um, yeah. And if you don't like that format change, you can blame me because I am overextended and uh, need a couple months off from doing a full album. I, I, I really like the fact that I saw my parents last week, our parents last week for father's day. And our mother said to me, Oh, you didn't know that Matthew's doing another, uh, podcast. And I just went, how many podcasts does this guy that one need is to done do? Now. I, 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 I get it, and I'm sure it was very entertaining, but I'm like, four wasn't enough, let's do five. Or is it three wasn't enough, let's do four. Yeah, I didn't have five. It was what? it was four total. Well, you know. Yeah, so check, if you like this show, check out that show. It's, it's a limited series, and it's all done. It's called Dire Desires, and it's uh, a podcast about life lessons from classic erotic thrillers. DireDesiresPodcast.com. Who gets these ideas? Um, you know, you sit around and watch enough bad movies from the 80s and 90s and <laughs> you want to force everybody else to listen to you talk about them. I, I'm surprised you did this and not an entire series on The Fast and the Furious. I That's a good point. I'm sure <laughs> many versions of that podcast exist. Um, anyway, uh, check us out on hiddenjukebox.com, uh, instagram.com slash jukeboxhidden. Uh, facebook.com slash hidden jukebox we are on all of your podcast platforms um and 
next month, you'll hear something a little bit different. Until then, I'm Jake Amster. I'm Matthew Amster Burton. Black Lives Matter.